The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 938. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Deanna. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Gary, and I am one of the pastors here. I look forward to getting into this passage with you all. If you're new to Park, I want to say welcome uh, to you. Uh, uh, Glad that you're here as I try to get my... Thanks, set up. Uh, glad that you're here and joining us. We gather every Sunday to worship Jesus. And then there's something that might be a little unfamiliar to you. Um, for us as a church, uh, as we work our way towards Christmas, we are trying to kind of slow down as a church and pay attention to what Christians throughout centuries have called the season of Advent, uh, which isn't just early Christmas. It's not kind of, hey, we begin to celebrate Christmas early, kind of like they would at like Walmart or Target, you know, get it out in October and, uh, and get all the decorations out, start trying to make money off people. Um, we, uh, we believe that the season of Advent throughout the history of, of the church is a season to slow down and pay attention to our need for Christ to come again. As we learn from the early kind of uh, God followers, the people of Israel, as they were thinking about the coming of Christ or the coming of the Messiah, and they were waiting and anticipating, singing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means God with us, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear, that that prayer that shaped the, the Israelites before the first coming of Christ is a prayer that still shapes us as the people of God today as we pray, O come, O come, Christ come again and make all things new. And so we're working through this series uh, called Christ Will Come Again where we're focusing on how that anticipation of the first coming of Christ that we celebrate on Christmas Day is to, is to shape the way we think about our anticipation for the day when he comes again to make all things new, uh, which is a classic confession of the people of God that comes straight from Scripture and is a core piece of who we are, but it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird. It's a weird if you're not familiar with uh, what that means or what that uh, refers to, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, if you are new here, uh, we have opportunities to get more involved in the life of our church. And so right after the service, you can go over in the back corner. Uh, we have a room marked, uh, it says new here. And uh, we take about 10 minutes uh, to get to know you a little bit and help you find other ways to plug in. Or if you want, you can grab that info card that's right there in front of you. Uh, you can fill out that info card and it could serve you um, if that would be helpful. Um, this morning, specifically, we're going to talk about 
goblins, aliens, and the apocalypse, um, which sounds exciting uh, or weird. And uh, before you leave, just give me a second to explain. Give me a second to explain. Goblins, aliens, and the apocalypse, all the things that, that you know, you like to talk about. So uh, we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the beauty of Christ and what he's done, and we'll dive in together. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we uh, come even now amazed at what you have done for us. As we consider your intervention in human history with mercy and grace and love, the way you laid down your life to bring forgiveness and cleansing and healing, to reconcile us to the Father, the way you've sent us your Holy Spirit even now to, to know that you're with us through the person of the Holy Spirit, that we're not alone today. As much as we might feel alone, as, as much as we might feel lost in the chaos or in the darkness, you've promised that you're with us even now. In this age, you are with us. Even to the end and the close of this age, you're with us. And then we also want to be a people that grow in the way we anticipate that day when you come again and make all things new. Like Joel talked about a couple weeks ago, that we'd be wakeful and watchful and eager, like on our tiptoes, like waiting. When is he going to come and restore all things? When is he going to come? Like Neil talked about last week, that we look to this return with hope. So we think about the pain in our own lives, the pain in our family, in our friendships, in our neighborhoods, in our city, around our nation and around the world, as we consider the brokenness, that we'd feel it as a groaning, like the groaning, like the groaning not that leads to death, but a groaning that leads to the birth of a child, like a, a groaning that, that's marked by anticipation of something coming, a joy that's coming. And so would you teach us how to groan with anticipation. And then today, uh, would you teach us how this season of waiting, of groaning with anticipation, of watching, is a season that's supposed to be marked by our, our pursuit of who you've designed us to be, the pursuit of holiness. And so would you help us, King Jesus, to see in this not just a, a, an invitation to kind of do Christian things, but to be who you designed us to be and to become who you've destined us to be. All by your grace and all for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever gotten to that place in life where you just kind of let go of yourself entirely and you just don't care anymore, right? Like, I uh, just don't care anymore. This happened to a lot of people during the pandemic, a lot of us. Uh, you just get to that place where it's like, you don't care. You know, you'll grab a, a carton of mint chocolate chip ice cream, sit in your bed and binge a whole season of something, stay up all night, and you just don't even care. You've like totally let go. You know, you're like eating in bed, crumbs are in the bed, which is gross, but you don't even care. You just don't even care. Or, you know, when the pandemic started and, you know, you kind of dress up and you want to look like you've got it together, and as time goes on, like... The I don't care is like now you're showing up on Zoom calls in your pajamas. You're not even pretending, not just on the, on the kind of business on the top, pajamas on the bottom, but like straight pajamas just don't even care anymore. Like, you know, Ben, as he comes up in his pajamas on Sundays, uh, read scripture in his pajamas, don't even care. Uh, just don't even, have you ever got to that space where you just, you just don't care anymore? Did you know there's a phrase for that? An Oxford dictionary named it the word of the year this year, and it is goblin mode. Goblin mode. And if you're, play, if you're playing like a goblin, alien, apocalypse, bingo, that's your first, that's your first one. Uh, go, goblin mode. Uh, goblin mode, defined by uh, Oxford English Dictionary, is a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. 
This is goblin mode. An AP or uh, Oxford uh, English Dictionary named it the word of the year. Um, and, and the reason why they named it the word of the year is because they saw it as a word that, that kind of defined and characterized just the age that we've been in. It was a word that was characterized or kind of came to bear, I think, 2009. It first showed up on Twitter. But it was during the pandemic, and particularly, particularly this year, that it became popular, at least in the online world. And I've never used the word before, except for yesterday. We made smoked bacon. It was amazing. Candied smoked bacon. And my son was grabbing multiple pieces with multiple hands. And I said, don't go goblin mode. Don't go goblin mode. Save some bacon for me. Um, and... Uh, so that's the first time I've used it in a sentence was yesterday. But I find the phrase fascinating, right? Goblin mode is, is like when you, again, you should be studying for a final or you should be preparing for a presentation coming up next week at work, but you stay up all night binging or playing video games or something. Goblin mode is, is where you just kind of let go of all things. You say, I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm kind of tired of being who I'm supposed to be. And I'm kind of tired of pretending I'm somebody I'm not. And I'm just going to let it go. I just don't even care anymore. Goblin mode. And it's not just these kind of like um, trivial things, uh, but goblin mode, I think, is a good characteristic of, of a huge piece of the human condition. That piece of us that wants to do what we want to do, wants to do it the way we want to do it, wants to do and pursue joy and satisfaction and pleasure however we want. And it's a way to think about really the, the nature of the world in our pursuit of our own version of pleasure, our own pursuit of joy outside of the reign of God. It's this idea of goblin mode. And it's into this environment that we live in now that's kind of owned it as like, yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now. Uh, that's kind of where we're, where we're at as a society right now. We're in goblin mode. And, uh, and it's into that environment that we're going to talk about this idea of how the return of Christ ought to motivate our pursuit of holiness. And, and the idea of the return of Christ and the pursuit of holiness are not topics that are going to make you popular this week uh, at the water cooler at work. Like if you're like, hey, let's talk about the return of Christ. People will walk away from you uh, quickly. Uh, if you say, I want to talk about the pursuit of holiness, people are going to walk away from you quickly. In fact, even in the church, the idea of the return of Christ and the pursuit of holiness have fallen by the wayside in terms of central topics that Christians talk about. And yet I would say, even for non-Christians, even for people around our city, the, the kind of foundational concepts underneath the return of Christ and this idea of the pursuit of holiness, which we'll talk about, underneath both those, there is a human longing for both of these things. There's a human longing with respect to holiness. There is a sense among humanity of what humans ought to be, the kind of people we are designed to be and what it means to become that kind of a person. This is all over, Right? Kind of progressives in our world have a version that they think humans ought to be this, and conservatives have a version they think humans ought to be this. There's competing values and different versions of that and visions for what that ought to be, but there's these, there are these kind of visions within the human soul of who we're supposed to be, who we ought to be, who you wish your neighbors were, who you wish your parents were, what you hope for your kids, and if you finally turn your heart towards your, your own self, who you wish you were. That there's a, a vision of what that ought to be. There's a, a vision of what the human person is supposed to be. And it's under that foundational idea or longing is, is kind of underneath this idea of, of holiness. And in the same way, there's a, a vision for what we want the future of the world to be. What do we want the future of the world to be? What's your kind of envisioned future as you think about what do you wish Denver was like? What do you wish America was like? What do you wish the world was like? 
What are, the, what are the things that you wish would change and come to bear and come to happen? So you have a vision for who you want humans to be and where you want the world to go. And these are the ideas underneath holiness and the return of Christ, that the Christian vision for who we're called to be as human beings is, is as human beings we're called to be holy. What does that mean? We need to talk about it. And the vision, the Christian vision for where the world is headed is marked by this beautiful end where the world is flourishing, all things made new, everything as it ought to be. And that comes when Christ comes again, the return of Christ. So we're going to talk about the relationship between these two things and, and potentially the passage that, one of the passages that brings it to bear, I think most beautifully, is, is this passage in Titus 2. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up or keep it open. If you don't have one, there's one right in front of you. We'd love to uh, look at this passage with you. We're going to unpack it a little bit uh, as we work through it. But the baseline truth that we're trying to unpack here is how is it that the biblical promise that Christ will come again ought to motivate and fuel our pursuit of holiness? So that's what we're going to do today. Um, what I want you to do is, is, un, is look with me. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. But to, to kind of drop in in the middle of a letter always hurts my soul because we don't know the context or what's going on. So Paul is writing to a, a guy named Titus who he's left on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. Paul had come there with a group of people, told people the good news about Jesus. People came to trust in Jesus, believe in him. And these little kind of communities of Christ followers are springing up all over the place. Paul, with his group of followers and, and his group of uh, church planters, moved on to kind of go to other places. And he left Titus in Crete to help kind of mature the church and bring it, establish leadership, kind of get clearer doctrine, but also help people live a life that... that is a manifestation of the things that they believe about Jesus. And so it's kind of the topic of the letter is how do we create a community that trusts in who he is and what God's doing in the world and what he's done? How do we live a life that accords with that, that like puts clothes on that, that like kind of fleshes that out in the real stuff of life? So that's what it's about. And he gets to Titus 2 verse 11. He's going to unpack really the central statement in the whole letter. He says this, for the grace of God has appeared. It's bringing salvation, or at least offering salvation. It's bringing the opportunity for salvation to all people. And in that, he's referring to the first coming of Christ. This word appeared is this word where we get the word epiphany, epiphino, where it has appeared. When Christ came into the world, which you celebrate on Christmas Day, grace appeared. It's grace. It's grace that has always marked the characteristic of God, but it appeared in human history, in space, in time, and in a person in the first coming of Christ. That word appearing, for the grace of God has appeared. Jesus came bringing grace to the world. And it says this, we're going to back up and unpack this in a moment. It says, then training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting, mark this verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. A hope is a confident belief in a future, a, a certain future. Our blessed hope, the appearing, same word as, as was used in verse 11, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's referring to a second appearing. The grace of God appeared in history when Christ came into this world, and the hope, this hope, that this kind of future we're longing for will come when the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he comes again. This is what we're talking about when we talk about Christ will come again. The return of Christ. Christians call it the second coming of Christ. The return of Christ. The day of the Lord. The age of the resurrection. The new age. This is where things are headed. And it's between these two appearings, these two advents, 
these two Advents that were called to live a certain kind of life. And so I'm going to show it here on the screen and kind of walk through a little bit. We'll back up, Ted, if you don't mind, to the previous slide. For the grace of God has appeared, that first appearing, bringing salvation for all people. And that grace is training us to abandon a certain way of living and put on a new way of life, to renounce what it says is ungodliness and worldly passions, these, these parts of us that want to push God out of the picture and chase our own desires. I want to push God out and chase my own thing. And when grace appears in the world, it trains us, has this ability to train us. We're going to unpack this little by little. It trains us to, to say no to those things. That's what the word renounce means, to, to renunciate them, to say no to them, to turn from them. It's the Bible word for repentance, right? This idea of turning. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and now to live a life that's marked by self-control, a life that's marked by uprightness and godly lives. The idea of our posture towards ourselves, our posture towards other people, and our posture towards God. Self-control, our posture towards ourselves. Uprightness, our way we interact with other people, and godliness, our orientation towards God, to put him back at the center. So that's the framework of the passage, and this is the the life we're called to live. And so what I want to ask this morning as we think about this is, what's the relationship between this promise that Christ will come again and the pursuit of holiness, and the pursuit of holiness? For a lot of Christians, there's a way of thinking about kind of life where we think the reason why Jesus came into the world was to get us to heaven when we die. And so for a lot, of, a lot of people, even in this room and a lot of people out uh, around the city, when they, if they're familiar with Christianity or grew up in the church, the idea is, I'm living my life, doing my thing. Eternity might be real. If it is, and if the heaven and hell thing that I've heard about kind of in, in various ways, if that's real, I'd like to go to heaven instead of hell. Is there a way to secure that? Well, sure there is. Pray this prayer, and then you get to go to heaven instead of hell cool. Did that. Now, what does that make me? That makes you a Christian. Okay. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying the real full truth is so much bigger and more profound and more life-transforming and more all-encompassing and more compelling and more beautiful and more inviting and more transformative than that kind of narrow, very small, kind of very simplistic way of thinking. In fact, if you come into Christianity thinking that, which many of us did, including me, it kind of short-circuits this whole thing called your life (laughs) and um, and why, why it matters what you're called to do and who you're called to be and how, it, how it's all related. So for some people, you get into this, like, I've got the heaven-hell thing sorted out in case it's real. In the meantime, I've kind of got some options of do I want to, like, really chase Jesus or not really chase Jesus? It doesn't really matter because my heaven and hell thing is secure based on a prayer I prayed. And, uh, and so I just kind of get, a, I get to opt in and opt out of the kind of, like, life decisions part of this whole thing. That is nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> it's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible is about an invitation to follow Christ to life. And that life, when we trust in him and the forgiveness that he brings and the grace that he gives and the cleansing that he offers freely, not by works, but it's by grace. The grace of God appeared. It's the grace of God that appeared. It's his forgiveness. It's his sacrificial death. It's his love. But that is welcoming us into a relationship, and that relationship is welcoming us into a life where we are learning to be who we are designed to be. Designed to be. 
And what I think is beautiful about this passage is it's, it's situating the pursuit of a life that's a Christ-like life, a life of holiness, a life where you're beginning to be who you're designed to be. It's, it's situating it between the freedom that's offered by Christ's first coming and the confident hope of his second coming. That you don't have to pursue holiness as a way to kind of atone for your wrongs or to earn God's love because the grace of God already appeared. You don't have to feel like hopeless in the kind of slow struggle of life as you're fumbling your way through like we all are, fumbling our way, wandering, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Wow, like I wander and veer and struggle and fall and setbacks and stuff I feel like stuck in all the time. But that whole experience of the kind of fumbling through life, trying to grow as a Christian is, is happening between grace that already appeared and the confident hope that Christ will come again and complete the work that he began. Which means the pursuit of holiness is marked by freedom and confident hope. Our, our, our kind of conversation today around this thing is, is not intended in any way to make you feel like, I just need to pull up my bootstraps more and try harder and I want God to love me again and I have to work harder to get God to love me nor is it supposed to be like shame on you you should be so much further and you're only here man freedom from guilt freedom from shame freedom why the grace of God appeared Christ came into human history while we were still sinners while we were running away he came into human history he laid down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins to forgive us and to reconcile us to God that appeared and that relationship we have with God is grace it's grace and, and Christ promises that this blessed hope the future we long for who we want to be what we want the world to be that future hope is coming it's coming it's a blessed hope it's the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ that's where it's all headed. And so now we get to joyfully like work this out. So the question I'm asking is, is in that kind of space that we're in right now, what, what is, why, why the space? Why not just like do the whole thing all at once? Why not just like come and appear and make the world new, right? So the Israelite expectation is that is the Messiah is going to come and he's going to do this incredible act of deliverance and he's going to transform the world. And the way it worked out is Christ came offering salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation with God. And he ascended to heaven and he promised that he's going to come again. And in the meantime, there's this whole mission. We're going to talk about the mission next week, about what we're called to kind of engage in and the movement of this good news around the world. But it's also this call to be a certain kind of person. And so I want to kind of work through what we're called to do. I want to read this quote from Paul David Tripp. This is in his book, Do You Believe? section on holiness. He says this, it's important to understand that we've been saved not just for heaven, but for holiness as well. We cannot ignore God's call or allow ourselves to lower his standard. My fear is that in our pleasure-obsessed world where comfort is king and temporary personal happiness is the definition of the good life, this quest of quests, he's talking about the quest towards holiness, towards Christ-likeness, will get lost in the endless din of our cravings for the next amusement. That's my fear, is that this call, this like beautiful, profound call that makes up the thrust of the New Testament, which is to hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's done, and to hope in the return of Christ when he comes and makes all things new, and to, in that space, grow to become who you were designed to be, who Christ redeemed you to be, and who you are destined to be. We are, in this stage, becoming that. We, we get this incredible opportunity, in this stage, to become who you already have been declared to be in Christ. To become it, to become fully, beautifully, 
remarkably human, the way God designed humans to be. Like we talk about the, the kind of work of disciple making as, as, as the, the vision of God to rehumanize the world, to bring humanity to who we were made to be, to who we were made to be. And so what I want to do is, is unpack this a little bit more, this idea of this pursuit of holiness and why it matters in this age. Well, we live in this age between being redeemed from the power of sin or the penalty of sin and, and, and finally when the presence of sin is no more and we get to kind of work this out in this life here and now. And it sort of follows the framework largely of the story of the Exodus uh, for the people of Israel. So if you remember the story of the Exodus, we preached through it years back. Uh, but if you're familiar with the Bible, if you made it at least into Exodus in your Bible reading plan, uh, even if you don't get to Leviticus, but at least to Exodus, um, you, you experience this thing where the people of Israel are, are in bondage. They're trapped in this experience of life that's crushing them. It's this inescapable burden that's destroying their lives and their community. And they can't free themselves from it. They can't redeem themselves from it. They're in an inescapable burden they, they cannot liberate themselves from. And they cry out to God. And God hears their prayer, and he intervenes with this instrument of deliverance, Moses. And Moses comes, and it's through the vehicle of a sacrificial lamb and the blood on the doorposts. The Israelites are redeemed from slavery, from that bondage, and they come out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and into the promised land. Except not really. There's this 40-year wilderness. Between redemption from slavery and entry into the promised land, there's 40-year wilderness where God gives them instructions on how to be his people. And they crushed it. They were awesome. They nailed it. Like, it was a total wreck. It was a total wreck where they struggle and they veer and they wander and God continues to stay merciful and faithful to his promise. And people will say, in the Exodus event, God got the people out of Egypt, and it's through the wilderness that he's getting the Egypt out of the people. To become the people that could come into the promised land to be who he designed them to be requires a process. There's a process. A process of being made holy. Of being set apart to be God's special people. Exodus 19 says, I, I'm call, I called you out and you're going to be my special people in the world. And you're going to be a light to the nations. And you're going to show the whole world what I'm like. You're going to reflect my, my glory, my love, my graciousness, my kindness, my generosity. The, 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 the beauty with which I made the world. You're going to reflect it to the whole world. And now we've got a wilderness where God is providing, he's sustaining, he's guiding them. But he's also refining them. He's purifying them for this life. And that's what we live in here and now. We live in a, in a wilderness where we are learning slowly, steadily, progressively to become who we're designed to be. So here's the way we say it as a church, that, that a disciple is someone who's been reconciled to God by grace, right? Grace of God appeared, right? We've been reconciled to God by grace. And now we're learning progressively to, to be with Jesus, which is presence, and to follow his way of life. That's our purpose, presence and purpose, right? We get to be with him in his presence, and we get to follow his way of life, who he's designed us to be. And that's exactly what he was calling the Israelites to do, and that's what this passage in Titus is about, which is what we want to kind of talk about in this space, is what does it mean to be people that are learning to put the presence of God at the center of our lives and to live our lives according to his purpose for us as human beings. And so this is 
fundamentally the pursuit of holiness. You might say, uh, hey, it never says holy, it never says be holy in Titus chapter 2. You're like, you're right. Great observation. Well done. Um, I love that. Um, here's what it says. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, right, to be separate, separate ourselves from this way of living and to put on this new way of living, which is fundamentally this vision for holiness. I'm going to read this. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to see the actual word holy in here, verses 13 to 16, it says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, like focus your mind. We've been called to something here. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is apocalypse. Uh, Bingo number two, you got apocalypse now, right? Like this idea of like when he comes and he reveals himself, like think about that. Set your mind on that coming day when Christ reveals himself to the world, who he is, and the whole world sees him as he is. Set your hope on that day. And what do we do while we're hoping in that day? It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? Renounce those things. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be holy. So what is holy? What does it mean to be holy? It comes from this Hebrew word kadosh. Can we say that? Kadosh? Kadosh. Kadosh. And that Hebrew word kadosh just means to, to cut something off. So you could have a cloth and you could cut a piece off. You, you kadoshed it. And, uh, and as you kadoshed it, it's now kadosh. It's now cut off. It's separate right? And so you've got this separate piece of cloth. Specifically in biblical terminology, to, to separate, it's not just like to do it. It's to take something that was common, so this piece of cloth, and to kadosh it, so now it's kadosh for a new thing. You're going to make an awesome thing with it. It's, it's now set apart from that old thing for a special purpose, for a special purpose. And God throughout the Bible is called holy, 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 kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. He's the most unique one. He's the most set apart one. Why? Because he created the world, and none of us did that. None of us did that. He's the life giver, and that's, that's none of us. He has all power, that's none of us. He, he knows all things, that's none of us. He is holy, holy, holy. He is utterly unique, utterly set apart, utterly separate and different and other. He's holy. And that, and that word holy marks in God his characteristic as the giver of life, the sustainer of life, the all-powerful one the creator of all things. He's holy. And throughout the Bible, for people like you and I that aren't him, to be in the presence of God requires us also to be made holy. That we also have to be set apart from both things that are common and things that are unclean or impure or profane. And to come into his presence with, with uncleanness, with sin, with impurity is a dangerous thing. I heard Tim Mackey talk about this with respect to the sun. The sun is this utterly unique kind of thing in our solar system that is giving life and sustaining life, and it's pure, and it's radiant, and if you get too close to it, you're toast. You're toast, right? Like, it's dangerous. Like, your kid's around a fire. Like, it's awesome. It's a fun night. We've got the fire pit. It's exciting. It's like life-giving. We're roasting s'mores. But if you get too close, it's, it's dangerous. And the holiness of God is a, is a dangerous thing. And for people to come into that space with uncleanness is a dangerous thing. And so you see this all throughout the book of Le- Leviticus. is how do you prepare people to enter into the holy presence of God? That's why the whole book of Le- Leviticus is about that. 
It's about the temple as, as this embodied space, sacred space where the holy presence of God is. The holy of holies, the holiest of the spaces where the Ark of the Covenant is, which shows God's the center of God's presence with his people. And to come into that space, you have to be made holy. And so another theological word we use for that is you have to be sanctified. Sanctified just means to be made holy. It comes from the same word, just to be made holy. But you could sanctify a person. You also have to sanctify a table. Like, that's weird. Uh, you have to t- sanctify like a fork. You have to sanctify like um, the, the menorah. And you have to make these things holy. You have to make them set apart. Like the menorah and the Holy of Holies isn't a normal menorah. It's a, it's a kadosh menorah. It's been sanctified. The table where you put the bread in the, in the temple isn't just like a normal table. It's been sanctified. It's been made holy. Why? To be in God's presence and to be for God's purposes. Presence and purposes. And to do that all throughout the Old Testament required blood. It required atonement. It required cleansing through the blood of an innocent animal. Is that because the blood of innocent animals did anything actually? No. No, it was, it was laying a foundation through which we would understand what it means to be people that come into the presence of God, that we could be made holy through the blood, the sacrificial love of Christ on our behalf. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea of people being made holy. And what we're saying is we're becoming set apart. We're becoming set apart for God's presence and God's purposes. And what Peter says and what Paul is saying here in Titus chapter 2 is that this part of life is us learning to become set apart. And it's a process. You have been set apart when you trust in Christ. That's why the New Testament calls you a saint. The word for saint is hagias. Can you say hagias? We can put it on the, on the screen there. Hagias, it's somewhere up there. Hagias, there you go. Hagias, that means saint. It also means holy. Saint. Sanctification is to be made holy. It's, it's to live into that reality, okay? So here's what I want to do. I, I want to kind of get into the, the meat of kind of what does that mean for us as a people to be made holy, to become holy as a people. And, and the reason why that's, it's a hard thing for us to talk about is it's, you know, when we think of the word holy, you think of like religious, pious, boring, staunchy people, right? Like you're like, like a pastor, you know, like, like somebody like me. You're like boring, staunchy, you know, uh, religious people that are like too serious about life. That's not the word for holy. Or maybe when you think of the word holy, again, you think of like either an expletive or an exclamation, like, like uh, Clay Thompson said, holy cannoli, after they won, the Warriors won the thing. He's like, holy cannoli, this is crazy. Like, holy, like what does holy mean, right? Holy smokes. Uh, wh- whatever you might want to say uh, there, uh, whatever your expletive of choice is, uh, often has the word holy before it. Why? I don't know. The other, uh, the, it's weird. Uh, my, here's my point, is we don't know what this means. We don't know what this means. Here's the other thing about holiness that's, that's a little concerning. That's a little concerning, is we weaponize it. We weaponize it against other people, like against the world, and think they're not holy, they're unholy, and you feel it's like this chasm between us and the world. Or you weaponize it against other brothers or sisters in Christ, like I'm taking God seriously, and they're not living a holy life. I'm living a holy life. Or maybe more centrally, you weaponize it against yourself, like I'm not holy. I, I guess that means God's disappointed and and if people knew what was really going on or if, if I faced the real stuff in my own life. And so we, we think of this term as ways to kind of like shame people or shame ourselves, and that's not at all. It's way more beautiful than that. It's way more powerful than that. I want to uh, read this, uh, this quote from 
from Dallas Willard. It's kind of long, but we'll work through it um, here quickly. It says this, the emotionally mature person is not the one with a starved, deprived existence, but rather one that reaches out and embraces and furthers all that is good, everything that is good. And that's a long list. You can start just with simple beauty. It's very hard to be grumpy when you're looking at a beautiful rose. Try it. It's turning to what is good that fills out the life of emotionally and spiritually mature person. As you step into spiritual maturity, you step into the wonderful world of God, so rich with good things that we won't have enough time to concentrate on them. This is the classic language of the church. This, this is, in the classic language of the church, holiness, sanctification. I have to acknowledge that the way many people present holiness and sanctification is a very pinched view of life. It's very starved because they've not been encouraged to turn themselves loose into the fullness of God's presence and all that is good for them to invest their lives in. That is not commonly thought of as part of holiness. We have to correct that, and much more can be done about that. But I give you these verses from Paul to help you have a picture of what they're aiming at, of what we're aiming at when we talk about becoming spiritually and emotionally mature people. And he quotes Paul, this idea of whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, if there's anything of excellence, think about these things. Like there's this beautiful life to be chased after. And we are made as human beings to chase it. To chase it. To chase after the presence of God and the purposes of God as this pursuit of, of what is truly beautiful, to live set apart. And so I'm going to read here this uh, just way that I think about this call to be holy. The biblical command to be holy is a call to be set apart from sin and impurity in order to live a life devoted to God's presence and purposes. It's to say no to these things that just corrupt our own life, corrupt our relationships, corrupt the world. To be set apart from that. And to live, to live this new kind of life that's saying, I'm going to put Jesus at the center and everything that he's called good and the life that he's called good and the flourishing way of life that he's led us in, I'm going to chase after that. That's the pursuit of holiness and that's what we get to be and get to do. What I love about this passage is is this word in the middle here. It says training. That the grace of God in the past and the confident hope in this future return this reality, we're, we're being trained in this space. And what I love about the word training is training is not like this call to perfection. It's a call into a process. It's a call into a process where, where there's progress that's made and there are setbacks. Have you ever trained for anything? If you've ever trained for anything, whether that's a half marathon or a marathon or an eating competition, like it doesn't matter. You know, like anything, like you, you begin taking these little steps to build up endurance. And you know you can take some steps forward and then there's a, you roll your ankle and you gotta take a break or you go, go too fast, too far and then there's setbacks. And, and training is a process that takes time. It's not a call to perfection. The call to holiness is there's no expectation that you would come into this space today and be perfectly, utterly holy. God didn't expect that. He's created this process, this environment between grace the grace of God that has appeared and the return of Christ that will come again, where we get to learn that as a part of a process. No shame, no condemnation, no fear, no speaking over people, all these things about you should be better, you should be better. It's in this context of God's love for us, his grace towards us, that we get to to do the work of learning to say no 
to a kind of life that was destroying ourselves and others, leading to destruction. And we get to begin to put on a new kind of way, a new way of living. That we get to do that, not as those that are trying to earn anything, but those that are stepping into the beauty and the goodness of who God's called us to be. And that's the design of God in this age. And do you know what happens when we struggle in that design? We learn more about God's mercy. We learn more about how much we need him. We learn more about how incredible his grace is towards us. We learn more about how faithful his love is to us. When, when John told us before, bring to mind something about God that just like makes you adore him. For me, it's just faithfulness. He is so faithful. I'm a train wreck most of my life. Like I every day struggle. There are things that are like, I'm like, I cannot believe this is still a part of who I am. How faithful is his love. How beautiful is his grace. How unending is his mercy. How steadfast is his kindness and his presence. What must God be like to love somebody like me and love somebody like you? Stunning. And do you know the more you own your struggle in this age, the more you're aware of God's love and the depth of it? And did you know that the more you're aware of his covenant love for you, the more transformation begins to work itself out in your life? Not the more you struggle against fear and shame and guilt and regret, the more you struggle and try to do better, that just leads to more shame, more fear, more guilt, more anger, more regret. The more you embrace his love for you and the reality of who you truly are, all the dark stuff that you don't want anybody else to see, the more you learn to bring that into the light of your own consciousness and bring that before God and confess that, the more you learn to bring that into the consciousness of others and own that in community and experience their love and grace for you in that space, the more you experience meaningful, deep down, grace-generated transformation. And that's what Jesus came to do. I want you to look at this last verse in Titus. That verse we looked at in Titus, it says this, we're waiting for the appearing of our blessed hope, the, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Paul is just super clear, who gave himself to get us to heaven when we die. No who gave himself, this is the purpose of his self-sacrificial giving love, who gave himself to redeem us. That means set us free from all these ways of running away from God's wisdom in life, to set us free from all lawlessness, and to purify, to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, a people who says, you are my people, I love you, you're my children, you're children of the Father, who are zealous for good works. And it's not like for doing good things, but for the life that's truly good, to, to be eager to step into who he made you to be. And I think that the beautiful aspect of this, I think is so powerful in, in, in the way that I love the way God has designed this space for us to grow as human beings. I, I want to read it from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 uh, through 3, 3. I want you just to hear John, the beloved apostle of Jesus, how he thinks about this. He says, now, little children, he's, he's, in, he's like in his 90s at this point, likely. I mean, he's, he's getting up there. Maybe not yet, but he's getting up there in age. And, uh, and he speaks to followers of Jesus as like his kids, like a grandfather sitting down saying, gather up, kids, gather up. I want to share with you something I've learned about God's love. He says this, and now, little children, abide in him, stay close to him, so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, like he's lived the life you're designed to live, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Like if you've truly been 
reconciled to God and given his spirit, you're going to be hungry for this kind of life. And then listen, listen to what he says. Look at what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God? Are you kidding me? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, we have this confidence that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When you understand what God has done for you in the past to adopt you into his family, when you understand who Jesus is and his faithful love and what he's going to do for us when we finally come to be with him, that he who began that good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes again, that we get to chase after that life of purity and holiness, to put off the things that destroy us and to put on a new way of living, to chase after Jesus, to stumble and fall, make mistakes, battle, where you realize the rabbit hole of my own brokenness goes deeper than I ever imagined, and God's love gets to make its way there next. That's, that's powerful. And this is the call as we wait for Christ to come again to pursue holiness in a place of both freedom and confident hope. Let's pray that God would do that in us. Jesus, we come right now and we pray that because of your grace and by your grace, you would indeed train us, teach us to live the life that you've called us to live. Not to earn something, not to prove something, and, and, and not by our own efforts or for our own glory, but by the power of your grace, the presence of your Holy Spirit. Teach us to be who you designed us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.